Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. I hope that after you listen to this podcast today, you will consider pre-ordering a copy of my new book, It's coming out November 24th. It's called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. It's so on point with everything that's happening in the news today as we approach the 2020 election. Today in the podcast, we're going to talk about what's coming up on this week's Full Measure, the roller coaster ride that is the Trump economy. And also, we will take a look at illegal immigration from the view of a traditional liberal, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who finds himself at odds with the establishment political parties on this issue. There was sort of a long road for this week's cover story, which will air Sunday, October 18th, because I wanted to do a story on the Trump economy. And I started thinking about this really almost a year ago and started reporting on it around January of this year. That's when the Trump economy was hot. It was perhaps, some thought, President Trump's best argument for a second term. So many successes, many of them unexpected. Do you remember that there were all kinds of projections and predictions early on that if Trump won the presidency, the stock market would immediately crash? You can see Mark Cuban predicting that, the billionaire entrepreneur. He predicted it in a video you can find on YouTube. September 12, 2016, it's entitled, Mark Cuban Predicts Stock Market Crash If Trump Wins Election. You can look at a now embarrassing piece in retrospect in Politico by someone named Ben White, who wrote an article on October 21, 2016, that said, economists, a Trump win would tank the markets. If GOP nominee pulls off a Brexit-like surprise, he writes, Wall Street would face a Brexit-like stock plunge. Who are the other experts weighing in in this article, which you can find even today in Politico under the title, A Trump Win Would Tank the Markets? Someone named Eric Zitzowitz from Dartmouth College said, Wall Street certainly prefers a Clinton win, certainly from the perspective of equity prices. There was a study co-authored also by University of Michigan's Justin Wolfers, who writes or says, you saw Clinton win the first debate and her odds jumped and stocks moved right along with it. Should Trump somehow manage to win, you could see major Brexit-style selling. In the same article, you have Michael Obuchowski of Merlin Asset Management, who Politico says has watched every move in the campaign closely and made two calls that Clinton will win and that she won't go as far left as some investors initially feared. His direct quote says, I always assumed Trump would eventually collapse, 
So that meant staying in equities and going away from certain high-dividend stocks, assuming Clinton is going to win and try to tax those dividends at a higher rate. Politico goes on to write, A shock Trump victory next month, remember this is in 2016, could crush stock prices perhaps by as much as 10% and send the peso and other currencies sharply lower while ushering in a period of intense market volatility as investors try and discern how Trump would govern and whether he would make good on his pledge to start trade wars with Mexico and China and deport 11 million current undocumented immigrants. And not to be outdone with the predictions, the authors of a paper quoted in Politico say, They envision a massive global market shock should Trump win in 2016. They write, quote, Given the magnitude of price movements, we estimate that market participants believe a Trump victory would reduce the value of the S&P 500, the UK, and Asian stock markets by 10 to 15%. Then you can look up an article in marketwatch.com, November 1st, 2016, by Simon Johnson, which says Trump's policies would curtail imports and slam the brakes on the U.S. economy. You could search for that title under the stock market could crash if Donald Trump is elected president. Common theme everybody started writing about. Everybody seemed to be on the same page. And in the article, it says that a big adverse surprise like the election of Donald Trump would likely cause the stock market to crash and plunge the world into recession. I'm going to remind you that none of this happened. If you look, CNN was also in on the act October 24th, 2016. Heather Long writes, a Trump win would sink stocks, which again, didn't happen. They're predicting this as if it's a fait accompli, as if they can read the future. They know what's going to happen. And they're just so incredibly wrong over and over again. So... She writes, if Donald Trump wins the U.S. election, U.S. stocks and likely many other markets overseas will almost certainly tank. How big of a drop? And she quotes forecasting firm Macroeconomic Advisors, predicting an 8% fall in the U.S. And then a paper from Brookings Institute, she quotes, saying a 10 to 15% nosedive. She writes, a Trump victory would be America's Brexit. It would shock U.S. and global markets much like the surprise June referendum in the UK. She goes on to note, almost everyone on Wall Street currently predicts Hillary Clinton will win the White House. A Trump triumph would likely cause investors to flee stocks to the safety of gold and bonds. Trump is the king of unpredictability, and he's campaigned on an anti-trade agenda, which wouldn't be good for big business. There's an article you can find at CNBC.com by Alex Rosenberg called If Trump Wins, Stocks Will Crash 50%, Wedbush Pro. And the article begins, If Donald Trump becomes the next president, stocks will fall 50%, according to Wedbush's director of equity sales trading. That's based on his analysis of the effects Trump's economic policies would have if the GOP frontrunner carried them out as president. Fortune.com says, A huge hedge fund says stocks will crash if Donald Trump wins. This is on November 8th, 2016, an article by Stephen Gandel. He writes, if Donald Trump wins the election, kiss your 401k goodbye. And a really big one 
Paul Krugman, who we are often reminded is a Nobel Prize winning economist, he wrote in the New York Times that the economic fallout of a Donald Trump presidency would be severe and widespread enough to plunge the world into recession. He called Trump the mother of all adverse events, predicting that the GOP nominee's administration could undo the progress the markets around the world have made in eight years since the financial crisis. Well, you get the idea. After Donald Trump was elected president, all of those people and experts were wrong. I don't know that they did big articles kind of explaining why they were so wrong or acknowledging that what they said was so far off base. But what actually happened was by the end of 2017, the Dow Jones Industrial Average rose 35% and made the previous 14 months one of the greatest bull market runs in history. According to Investor's Business Daily, $6 trillion of wealth was created for Americans, which was very good news, says Investor's Business Daily, for the 55 million Americans with 401k plans. Remember the earlier prediction that said you could kiss your 401k plan goodbye? And maybe here's the best compilation of short quotes that predicted catastrophe in the Investor's Business Daily article. It's titled, And the hits just kept coming, the greatest false predictions of 2017. Actually, they're quoting 2016 predictions, though, like the one by former GOP presidential candidate Mitt Romney in March of 2016. Romney claimed Trump's domestic policies would lead to recession. A former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund in November 2016 said, if Trump wins, we should expect a big markdown in expected future earnings for a wide range of stocks and a likely crash in the broader market. Former Clinton and Obama chief economic advisor Larry Summers in June of 2016 said, under Trump, I would expect a protracted recession to begin within 18 months. The damage would be felt far beyond the U.S., Simon Johnson, MIT economics professor in the New York Times, November 2016, he says, Trump would likely cause the stock market to crash and plunge the world into recession. Bloomberg, August 2016, writes, Citigroup, a Trump victory in November could cause a global recession. And the Washington Post in an editorial, October 2016, a President Trump could destroy the world economy. An investor's business daily points out the world economy at that time, after Trump was elected, was as strong today, they report, as it has been in at least a decade. And the Wall Street Journal also reported the same. All right, that's just a lot of fun looking back at seeing how wrong so much reporting is. Just sort of a lesson when you hear reporting today, it could be just as wrong. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But a lot of the same people are out there as if no mistake had ever been made. But I wanted to dig into, this was the beginning of the election year in January, what is the Trump economy? What does it mean? How is it defined? How has he made his mark? And what do the people who don't support Trump think defines the Trump economy? So this is how I began the story. I actually went to the NASDAQ Stock Exchange they were great to show me around the trading floor and where they don't really do trading like they used to because, as you probably know, it's all electronic, kind of done with people sitting at desks. 
but it was interesting to learn how the stock market works and to talk to them about the Trump economy and how, boy, Donald Trump's Twitter account can change things in a moment on the stock market. So they have his Twitter account being watched in real time, just in case. But then I really wanted a serious assessment about the Trump economy. Again, this is before coronavirus when we started. And I went to Martin Neal Bailey of the Brookings Institution. He headed up the Council of Economic Advisors under President Clinton, a liberal who does not support President Trump. And at the time I spoke with him, the economy was on a high, no idea that coronavirus was around the corner. I asked what he sees as the features of the Trump economy at the time. And he said there was good news and bad news. He did give Trump some credit. He said the good news was that we had very low unemployment and very low inflation. But he also told me he saw a number of danger signs. And one of them is that he thought the underlying growth rate of the economy, the trend over the long run, as he put it, did not seem to have changed much under the Trump presidency. And he felt like it needed to be faster. He said productivity growth has remained slow and has been slow, he said, since 2004, 2005. So I followed up by asking, does he think President Trump has specifically done something that is responsible for some of the positive features of the economy? Because, you know, there is the philosophy that a lot of the economy sort of runs kind of on its own or at least independent of what the president does. But Bailey pointed to the fact that Trump cut taxes. And he said, I don't necessarily like the way he cut taxes, but he acknowledged that it was a fiscal stimulus and spurred the economy and spurred economic growth. And he went on to say that's one of the reasons why we had such low unemployment and that it worked as according to plan. So for another perspective, I also spoke to a Republican who didn't vote for Trump. So someone on the other side of the aisle, but did not like Trump in 2016, Steve Forbes. Do you remember Steve Forbes? He ran for president a couple of times. Uh, He was pushing the flat tax, which was the idea that people above a certain income would be charged. I think it was something like 17%, a flat tax, and that's it. But everybody would pay the same and it would actually make more money than our tax system and also be simpler. He said you could fill out your taxes on a postcard. But he ran for president in 96 and 2000. And I caught up with him in New York and asked where he stood, first of all, with the last election. That's when he told me that even though he's a Republican, he did not support Trump. And then I asked him how he thought Trump was doing. Again, this is before coronavirus. And he just said he had no idea that Trump would actually have the instincts he did, which were more or less get out of the way and let things work. And Forbes actually said builders like to get out of the way, make things happen, and that it's turned out rather well. He also offered that he would be voting for Trump this time around, not in 2016, but in 2020. So then I asked him what the key components of the Trump economy mean to him or what they are, how he defines them. And he said, the Trump economy means we're growing again, we're creating jobs, wages are up, lower income earners Their wages are rising faster than those of middle or higher income, so the gap was starting to close. And then he pointed out that a lot of people overlook the group in America that at this time had begun starting more businesses than any other group, the Latino community. And he said African-Americans 
after seeing sort of a flat line for years, we're also starting to see a surge in new business formations. So this was a pretty rosy assessment from the people who oppose Trump. Then not long after I conducted those interviews, coronavirus hit, changed the whole story. As you know, the Trump administration shut down the U.S. economy more or less for health reasons. Then the stock market did crash and unemployment did soar. And the whole notion of what the Trump economy means and what this would do during the election year, that changed in an instant. The Congressional Budget Office now estimates that all of the impact of coronavirus will cost the U.S. economy $8 trillion over the next decade. So I then set out to figure out where we stand today. And for that, I went to a third person, one who did support Trump in 2016, economist Peter Morisi. So remember, I've talked to two people who didn't support Trump and one who did. And I asked him now, post-coronavirus, what is the Trump economy? What has it become? And he said that the Trump economy was doing reasonably well before coronavirus when compared to the Bush and the Obama years. He was not effusive, but he did say the growth was a bit more rapid. He agreed with Steve Forbes that income inequality was starting to shrink. And he also pointed out that minorities and women were getting more robust opportunities, as he said in the past, not just for wage increases, but the kinds of jobs they held he saw it as a very good and healthy economy. Then came coronavirus. So after coronavirus, there have been some surprises. As you may know, the housing market is having a boom. I don't think anybody predicted or expected that. And then the number of people who lost their jobs and are out of work, that's epic. There's just no way to sugarcoat that. It's disastrous. And yet, as Marisi pointed out, not nearly as bad as many had predicted. In fact, it was above 14% in April, and then it went down by August to 8.4%. It's still a bad number, but not nearly as bad as some thought it would be. And then the stock markets, another surprise, I think, while it's gone up and down, they've gained back all of the ground they lost when coronavirus struck, and they've reached new record highs. So I asked Marisi how that could be. What happened with things being so bad in the economy in some ways? Why does the stock market look good in other ways? And he explained it that 80% of the economy, he said, is doing quite well on average. And that two-thirds or three-quarters, he said, is doing really, really well. It's about a quarter that he estimates is doing very poorly. But the stock market, he says, reflects that two-thirds or three-quarters that's doing really well. He says, besides the oil industry, airline industry, and tourism industry, that much of the rest of the economy is booming. Manufacturing is recovering. He said the technology sector is doing really, really well. He pointed to Apple ordering a lot of new iPhones for Christmas. And that's what he says is found in the stock market when you see those positive moves. So if you want to see more context on this and the full story, I hope you catch Full Measure. That's this Sunday, October 18th. And I'll be back after a short break to tell you what else is coming up on the show. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast 
right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The news as we once knew it no longer exists. It's become a product molded and shaped to suit the narrative. Facts that don't fit are omitted, off-narrative people and views are controversialized or neatly deposited down the memory hole. Partisan pundits, analysts, and anonymous sources fill news space, leaving little room for facts. I hope you'll pre-order my new book today, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. We're back. You know that on Full Measure, what I try to do is hear viewpoints and stories and angles that are underrepresented or censored or self-censored largely on other media. And we hear from all different views. We welcome progressive, liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat. And we don't usually argue points. We're not targeting people unless it's a special investigation and then you will know it. But in general, we let people answer the question. We hear them out and then you get to decide if you agree with them or not or what points you think they're on target with and which points maybe you think they're off base with. That's up to you to decide, not me. But I did an interesting interview with a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter named Jerry Kammer. This will also be on Sunday, October 18th. And his book is called Losing Control, How a Left-Right Coalition Blocked Immigration Reform and Provoked the Backlash that Elected Trump. You know me, I like the kinds of stories that aren't just necessarily, if they're political at all, I don't typically like to do them if it's just Democrat versus Republican, ordinary stuff that everybody covers. I do like the stories where you can go a little deeper. Maybe Democrats agree, disagree with one another. Maybe Republicans disagree with one another. Maybe there's more to the story than, than people know. And this is one of those stories because Jerry Kammer is a moderate liberal, longtime progressive guy, but from the old days when he says that Democrats were the leading opponents of large-scale illegal immigration because they were concerned about the effects that illegal immigration would have on the working class and also what would happen in regards to exploitation of people brought here illegally, how they could be treated, how they would be afraid to complain about the conditions of work and that the pay was below standard, even below legal levels, but they were here illegally, so who's going to complain? That was considered some time ago exploitative, that a lot of people didn't think that was right before both parties sort of started kind of defending this practice. Anyway, I spoke with Jerry Kammer, who wrote this book, and he makes the case and follows the money trail as for why both Democrats and Republicans today, at least political figures, not ordinary Americans, but people running the show, how come so often they are on the same page, in his view, protecting the system that allows and encourages illegal immigration? So first I asked him to define what is our illegal immigration policy in the U.S., and he says, in simple terms, 
if you look for work in the U.S., you have to demonstrate that you're authorized to work in the U.S. But he says we are not enforcing that seriously and that we've made the system, he says, very easy to cheat with fraudulent documents and many other ways. And he points out that unless our political leaders are really going to enforce the law and commit to what they've promised to do and enforcing limits, it creates this chaotic situation that we have where many in the public are frustrated, the policies are difficult to figure out, reform to the extent that anybody wants it is impossible to come to agreement on. He says basic human rights are a concern because of the way illegal immigrants can be treated when they come here under these circumstances. So then we did talk about why some on the right seem totally on board with the idea of allowing illegal immigration now that the left has largely at least political leaders come around to that viewpoint. And he explains it by the libertarian pro-business faction of the right that he says can't get enough of hardworking people who are willing to work for far less and afraid to complain about working conditions for fear of being deported. At the same time, he says this, of course, puts authorized workers and legal immigrants and native-born Americans at a competitive disadvantage, and they're losing jobs because of this. So he kind of talks about how that factoring with globalization and automation has impacted a lot of our, our plight, or at least workers' plights. So then I think one really interesting part of his book is going through the hundreds of business and academic lobbying groups that have spent hundreds of millions of dollars since just 2001, contributing to politicians and trying to influence the decisions, which is why we have this chaotic hodgepodge policymaking, you know, where everybody says something needs to be done, but nobody seems to agree on what to do. And he said the most prominent group among the ones he followed was the National Chamber of Commerce, which you've probably heard of, the pro, which he considers pro-illegal immigration and putting a lot of money into that view. But he says there are many, many business groups that want what he calls a loose labor market. He points to Mark Zuckerberg and others in Silicon Valley who are interested in certain skilled worker visas. But he says there are just countless contractors and landscapers, restaurants, roofers, all kinds of businesses like that that also want this loose labor market. And that keeps downward pressure on wages for everybody. So I asked the question for Cameron since he studied this, that polls have consistently shown Americans want immigration reform. And I said, the trick is, what does it mean? Because when I was covering Capitol Hill for CBS News, everybody kept saying, oh, you know, 90% of people want immigration reform. Well, the problem was immigration reform meant one thing to one person or one side, and it meant something entirely differently to the other. In fact, some wanted immigration reform so that illegal immigration became more common or more forgiven, whereas others who wanted reform wanted it to become stricter. So they weren't really in agreement, even though a huge percentage of people wanted reform. There was not a consensus of 90% on what the reform should be. But Kammer said that polls show most Americans do want limits, and want the limits on immigration and illegal immigration to be enforced. But he says they've simply come up, the majority of Americans, 
against the far better organized and the better funded lobby on the other side. You can hear more from Jerry Kammer and hear more about his book, Sunday on Full Measure. And as always, if you want to see where it might be carried in a television station near you, you can find a list of times and stations at fullmeasure.news under About. Or you can go to CherylAckison.com and click the Full Measure tab, and I have a list by city. I think it's actually easier to find there. But also, it shows how to find us on demand anytime or live on STIRR. That's our app, S-T-I-R-R. And maybe the easiest two ways to watch Full Measure, if you don't know any other way to watch it, is live at fullmeasure.news online, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time, or replays anytime. We post the program about noon on Sunday after it airs on TV. So you can just go to Full Measure News, fullmeasure.news, um, right now or anytime and see the most recent segments that we've posted. And you know what will make you feel really good about it? It's sort of like news used to be before everybody was shoving a lot of opinions down your throat and telling you you could only think a certain way and before everybody was filled with political pundits and roundtables and leaving out all the other news it seems that's happening in the country and the world besides these same few stories about political drama. So you'll get a taste of what else is going on in the news covered in a fair and interesting way every week on Full Measure. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that you will subscribe to Full Measure After Hours, leave a great review, and share it with your friends. Also check out my other podcast, The Cheryl Atkinson Podcast, through justthenews.com, but you can listen anywhere you like to listen to your podcasts. Pre-order my new book coming out November 24th. Pre-order it for yourself or as a gift, a holiday gift for somebody. It's called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. It explains a lot. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.